Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, letting you know that we're really fortunate tonight because we're going to accompany a group of Central Valley World War II veterans on their honor flight from Fresno to Washington, D.C. in April of last year. They were accompanied by tonight's author, Janice Stevens, who served as a representative for Central Valley Magazine. If you're a regular listener to Valley Writers Read, you know that we've had Janice on many times. And so here she is, Janice Stevens, telling us all about the Central Valley Honor Flight for World War II veterans, April 28th, 29th, and 30th of 2014. I watched the KMPH photographer focus a large camera on his shoulder and sweep the crowd of veterans and guardians waiting to board the plane to Fresno. Coming toward us, he knelt on one knee and directed the focus to Renfro and me. As Lloyd clutched my hand in both of his, I leaned toward him while he sat in his wheelchair so he could comfortably hold my hand. Gentle movements told me he was awake and alert, a slight pressure, a light tapping, and an occasional taking my hand to his cheek and resting it there for a moment. I immediately recognized the photographer's intent. He saw a story in a single image of those clasped hands holding mine, and I didn't move. Later, task completed, I gently withdrew my hand and straightened. I said, It was the hands, wasn't it, to the photographer, and he gave me the thumbs-up sign. I wondered in what newscast our hands would make their debut. While waiting for our delayed flight to return to Fresno, I allowed my thoughts to linger on the whirlwind three-day Central Valley Honor Flight. This gift, offered by a grateful community, flew the World War II veterans to see the memorial dedicated to those who served in World War II and who paid the ultimate sacrifice. The words of Alan Perry, president and trip leader, Central Valley Honor Flight, haunted me throughout the journey. These frail men in wheelchairs were once young and strong and brave, and perhaps scared to death, but they defeated tyranny in Europe and Asia when nothing less than democracy and civilization hung in the balance. The three-day trip would give the World War II veterans the opportunity to visit the nation's capital and would last the rest of their lifetime. It would, by necessity, be a final mission for most of these veterans with an age range of 87 to 99. The passage of time alone dictates this as their last. It is unlikely many, if any, would be able to sustain a journey such as this again. Perry said, We can never erase images of what they saw or nightmares of horrors they endured, but Honor Flight can give them one more memorable and positive experience for the timeline of their life, of thanks, richly deserved recognition, and expression of love from the citizens of this valley. 
Our early Monday morning required a 5, 5.30 a.m. send-off on April 28, 2014. The military, by tradition, meets these obligations with precise punctuality. I was not surprised to see the baggage claim area full of veterans, families, and friends, and those who came to celebrate with them before they boarded their plane. The excitement for what was to come was palatable. Renfro chuckled as he said, I think one of the things I noted was they were serving donuts and coffee at the airport in Fresno, and the vets were chatting. It was like the old camaraderie of being in the service. Renfro served with the 95th Army Ground Forces Artillery and is one of my World War II veterans in my Stories of Service class. Throughout the years, I had seen his eyesight gradually dim until he became legally blind, dependent on his white cane and his friends to help him. When the bugle sounded to proceed to Gate 14 to our chartered Allegiant Air Flight 4402, spectators waved their American flags and kept a constant clapping cadence. As began our cruise before takeoff, the Fresno Yosemite International Fire Department drenched our plane in a water cannon salute. It's raining, someone piped up. Perhaps it was foreshadowing of what was to come. I glanced out the side window as our plane began its ascent and saw a solitary man, his hand in salute to the warriors on board. I assumed he would remain in that position until our plane was no longer in his sight. The first introduction came to us from the pilot, a retired Air Force colonel, who chose to fly the honor flight in appreciation for the World War II veterans. We knew we were in good hands indeed. Renfro said as much upon our arrival at Baltimore, Maryland International Airport. The pilot filed a nice flight plan, and we had a smooth drive, just a few bumps. Another water barrage greeted us after touchdown at the airport. On our walk down the jetway to the concourse, the veterans were greeted with the warm welcome of flags waving and continuous clapping. An attractive woman planted large lipstick kisses on the cheeks of the veterans, much of what remained the next day. I didn't want to shave or wash it off, laughed Renfro. We then were assigned to a color-coded red, yellow, and blue group for the tour buses we would take from the Hilton Hotel in Crystal City, Virginia, for each excursion. Continuing the warm welcome we had received, our journey then took us through Maryland until we reached the American Legion Post 276, where we were greeted by military in full-dress uniforms, saluting the veterans as they came off the bus. We relished the catered dinner of Mission Barbecue, pork, beef and turkey, macaroni and cheese, rice, string beans, cornbread or rolls, and dessert of cookies. Our drive after this generous meal to the hotel took us through our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where the monuments glowed against a stormy night sky. The norm for the next two days would be rising early for a 6, 6.45 a.m. breakfast in the private dining hall of the Hilton. Here, the aroma of bacon with scrambled eggs, pancakes, danishes, orange and cranberry juices, with coffee for the early morning ritual beckoned to us. The words for the day as we faced another rainy day, Perry said, adapt and overcome. Our itinerary in hand, we followed it as well as the constant rain allowed, taking another tour around D.C. to visit the U.S. Marine Corps War Memorial, Iwo Jima, the first stop. With only a light rain to contend with, the veterans loaded into wheelchairs, used walkers, or walked carefully on sodden pathways to study the poignant symbol reminding them of the raising of the flag at Mount Suribachi. 
Stories flowed as one after another confided their memories to another comrade. My buddy had dysentery. I remember one of my buddies saw the flag go up, looked down, and saw bodies floating in the water. I remembered Ross Dahl, World War II Marine First Lieutenant, who had gradually revealed his memory of Iwo Jima and the raising of the flag in the Stories of Service class. They broke out this big map of an island and said, This is Iwo Jima. This is where we're going. The 4th and 5th Division will be coming there from the Hawaiian Islands and the 3rd Division from Guam. They told us how we would land. The 4th Division would go up the east side of the island. The 5th Division would cross at Isthmus right at the foot, capture Mount Suribachi, then go up the west side of the island. The 3rd Division, if necessary, would come in and go right up the middle of the island. This was all top secret, but they told us because we couldn't go any place then except ashore. It was planned that the operation would take four to five days with two divisions, the 4th and the 5th. On the third day, the first flag went up. I was on a ship right up by the northeast corner of Iwo Jima, and from the deck of the ship, we could see the flag go up on Mount Suribachi. The following day, we got orders we were going to go ashore. It's standard procedure in the Marine Corps. The day you go into combat, boy, do they feed you. We had steak and eggs for breakfast. That means for sure you're going to go to shore. I only saw one of the kids I went ashore with, and that was about the next morning after we got there. I saw him. He had started to get out of a foxhole and stopped a bullet right in his forehead, and I think the rest of them were probably in about the same shape. They had no idea how to protect themselves. The World War II veterans' horrific memories surfaced, yet the tone was of solemn respect and shared experience. There would be more of those moments. With the rain intensifying as we returned to our buses, another admonition came from Perry. This is your captain speaking. The vets are in maroon, the guardians in blue. Don't separate. That theme of safety first was reinforced at all times with the careful and attentive guardians aiding the veterans in all capacities. Our view from the rain-splashed windows offered lush greenery and vividly blooming flowers, including pink and white dogwood trees spotted through the area. Our tour took us down streets paved in early American history, streets named Constitution and Independence Avenues, past buildings such as the Gatekeeper's House, across from the Washington Monument, with finishing touches continuing after the earthquake took its toll. And in the memorial, the veterans came to see their World War II memorial. The hard rain did not deter these veterans, remnants of the greatest generation, accustomed to hardship and persevering. Pelted by pounding rain, they loaded into their wheelchairs, put on ponchos and hats, held umbrellas. Even those bareheaded braved the elements to pose for pictures in front of their particular memorial state or theater of war. We were soon gathered in for a group photo with Congressman Jim Costa D., who welcomed the World War II veterans to their memorial. The only words I could hear at the end of his speech were, Hip, hip, hooray, repeated two more times while he pounded his fist in the air before we boarded our buses for our luncheon at the James Madison Building, an annex of the Library of Congress. Along the way, through rain-splattered windows, we saw the National Botanical Gardens, Library of Congress, Capitol Building, U.S. Courthouse, the museum that carries every newspaper every day, the National Archives where our Constitution is housed, 
the Navy Memorial, J. Edgar Hoover Building, the U.S. Post Office, Ford's Theater where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and the house where he was taken after the shooting. We crossed the Potomac River several times on our tours and saw the Jefferson Memorial across the river from the Washington Monument. Our bus driver pointed out the Air Force Memorial where we would eat one of our three box lunches. If the terrorist plane had been just a little lower, it would have clipped the tops of the three spheres and probably not made it to the Pentagon, he said. With the massive Pentagon buildings inside, it was a sobering moment remembering that tragic day in our American history. You can see where the plane went in, showing where the lighter bricks restored the destruction left by the plane. Arriving at our luncheon, consisting of a box lunch, then Montpelier room, sixth floor, the Madison building, we were welcomed by Congressman Costa again, who noted an unusual factor. Four congressmen, three R's and one D, in the same room, agreeing on a bipartisan issue, veterans' affairs, and honoring our World War II veterans. It was a moment of levity after an emotional morning. Each of the R congressmen, Jeff Denham, David Valadeo, and Devin Nunes, in addition to D, Jim Costa, spoke briefly of their appreciation for the veteran service. Dr. James Billington, the head librarian for the Library of Congress, also spoke. He's been with the library since 1987 and was the vision behind the Veterans History Project. The project began in 2000 as a part of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress to collect, preserve, and make accessible the personal accounts of American war veterans so that future generations may hear directly from veterans and better understand the realities of war. As Costa said, each and every one of you has a story to tell, and we stand on your shoulders. We owe you a debt of gratitude that can never, ever be paid. After another stop to linger at the World War II Memorial again, we adapted a revision in our itinerary to return to the hotel to dry out. Everyone received a drenching at the memorial, but that did not discourage them from another chance to walk around and take it all in. Not only were their clothes wet, but those wheelchair-bound sat in water. Hanford veteran Jack Swartz, who served as a World War II Navy commander, celebrated 99 years of age the day we left. He summed up how he and many others felt about the memorial. The bronzes and the tributes paid to their fallen comrades, Swartz said, reminded him of what they had to go through. In spite of becoming a prisoner of war, he believes he had it easy. It was a long time ago. I was captured three days into the war in Guam and spent the whole damn war on my butt, in Japan the whole war. I knew a lot of guys who were horribly mistreated, like in the Bataan Death March, but compared to that, I just had fleas and things. But I was treated well. With torrents continuing to fall and our hearts and minds full of the momentous events of the trip, no one argued when the decision was made to settle in for the rest of the day and evening. The priority for our last tour in Washington, D.C. would be to visit the Arlington National Cemetery to view the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns. Perry's words lingered in my mind of a place and event that is sacred as we made our silent procession to the viewing area. The crisp military precision the guards made in the transfer from one to the next awed us. They paced the walkway in front of the tomb with no apparent regard to the pouring rain. Once the young men completed their duty, we solemnly returned to our buses. 
little was said. The rows and rows of white crosses on meticulously groomed grounds, in spite of falling leaves and endless rain, offered a stark reminder of so many lives lost in defense of our lands and the cost of freedom. More memorials beckoned to us, and we continued on to the Women's War Memorial adjacent to the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. Here, our five World War II women received a media frenzy justly deserved, and then on to the Air Force Memorial we had seen on our driving tour. With another torrent falling, not everyone got out for this memorial. We enjoyed our third box lunch of the trip, eating on the buses. Our last stop before heading to Baltimore, Washington Airport, and our return home was to the Vietnam Wall. Although the original plan for our itinerary was to visit the wall and the Korean Memorial, due to the rain and our time constraint, we were asked to only visit the wall. The weather simply didn't warrant a longer visit. Groups of young people, as well as our veterans group, walked beside the long black wall. It was impossible for me to read specific names, but the etched images encompassing the entire wall brought tears to my eyes. Occasional gaps in the crowd allowed a few visitors to brush the moisture from the wall in an effort to read a name, another poignant reminder of loved ones whose names are engraved on that wall are not forgotten. Flash flood warnings and lightning threatened our departure as planned when we gathered in the airport. It had been a smooth, well-planned, and coordinated trip, but we now were eager to return home. Breaking my reverie, finally, much later than we had anticipated, we were able to board the plane for our return flight. It didn't take long to be airborne, and the emotional and physical tolls played into the quiet plane. Many dozed, others read, some talked quietly, continuing to share their World War II experiences with their seat companions. Breaking the lull, Perry, our ship captain, blew the bugle and interrupted our quiet to say, Mail call. All the passengers came to attention. Manila envelopes found their way to eager veterans' hands, and the excitement permeated the entire plane. Watching the veterans reach into their envelopes to pull out letters and cards from their families, school children, veterans, and others was yet another emotional tug. I sat down next to Renfro and watched his guardian, Nancy Huey, read the letters to him. When she tired, I took over and continued to read until his envelope was empty. I didn't get much mail in the war, he said. We'd be assigned to armored divisions so fast the mail couldn't catch up to us. I couldn't help but reflect on his story, watching the emotion on his face as Nancy read first one, then another letter. In December 1944, in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge, I remained with a part of our unit near the town of Kurlingen, Germany, along the Saar River. One night, my assignment was to take a patrol and set up an observation post on a hill overlooking a down bridge situated below us on the river. We were to keep an eye on some enemy pillboxes and call in a mortar barrage if we saw any activity among them. At about 2.30 in the morning, our phone rang. Someone on the other end spoke to me in broken English with a very thick German accent saying, We are coming to get you. I passed the word that an enemy patrol was nearby. Later, one of our guys, underestimating the danger, stood and challenged an intruder's approach in the darkness. He was immediately hit with a burst of an enemy burp gun, 
A lively firefight ensued, but our 50 caliber machine gun turned that enemy patrol back. After a quick call on the field radio to our mortar platoon, the hillside was cleared. I don't think the guy who challenged that enemy patrol survived. Our 20th Corps pressed on to liberate many cities and towns, crossed six rivers, and passed through the Argonne Forest in a matter of hours. Several columns of German soldiers were either captured or destroyed, along with your equipment. Our efforts won great acclaim from Winston Churchill himself, Renfro wrote. Soon we began our descent to Fresno Yosemite International Airport, clustering on the tarmac to begin our walk back to the terminal, our World War II women veterans leading the parade. We walked between saluting sailors from the Lemoore Naval Air Base, bagpipes playing their mournful, distinctive sound, and the Clovis Community Band's musicians belting out renditions of each branch of the service. I walked next to a tall, tough, and stoic Marine, my brief seat companion on one of our bus tours. Glancing up at him, I saw him wipe the tears of appreciation from his face. I didn't think it would get to me, he said, with a rather sheepish grin. He was not alone. Our warriors received a welcome nothing like they had received upon their return from war some 70 years ago. That was Janice Stevens telling us all about her recollections of being on an honor flight for some Central Valley World War II veterans back in April of 2014. They flew from Fresno to Washington and back. It was a trip that was a gift by a grateful community to fly these veterans to see the memorials in our capital dedicated in their honor, in the honor of all those who served our country in World War II. After all, it was these veterans who defeated a formidable Nazi enemy. Without them, democracy might well have been abolished and our whole world plunged into an indescribable tyranny. Friends, Janice Stevens, our author tonight, has been on our show many times. We're indeed indebted to her for not only accompanying all these veterans on their trip to Washington, but also for the classes that, for many years, Janice has taught at Clovis Adult School, especially for Central California veterans. Indeed, on several occasions, we've had Janice's students read their stories on our show. So here we have not only a fine writer, a generous volunteer, but a really dedicated teacher who does so much for our community. We thank her for all her service to our veterans and our community and for her contributions to our show. And of course, we hope that she'll have more stories for us in seasons to come. Now, if any of you out there would like to donate some money so that more veterans can go on honor flights to Washington, please get online at cvhonorflight.org or call the Fresno Regional Foundation. 
And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our writer will be David Barofka. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you.